I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. A few weeks ago, I received a message from a young man, Daniel Pilias, on Instagram. And Daniel said, Mo, you constantly ask for guest recommendations on Slow Mo. I think you should host my sister. And I said, okay, sure, tell me about her. And here is what he wrote back. Mo, Kata is my younger sister. Kata is one of the most inspiring people in my life. Her journey, dedication, perseverance, positivity is truly admirable. And her testimony for sure will inspire thousands. Kata is Colombia's number one top women's professional squash player. And she has obtained numerous athletic achievements, too many to count as a matter of fact. Within the squash world, in the Pan American Games, World Games, doubles world championship, national tournaments, her talent and passion for squash provided her with the opportunity to play and study at Trinity University in the USA, where she won several tournaments and was the team captain. Her joy for squash is not limited to her career itself, but she also helps promote squash via different programs across Colombia through a program called the Squash Urbano, which helps the less fortunate thrive through sports, providing them with more opportunities in education, development, and integration. I looked Catalina up, and Catalina Pelaez, her highest rank is 56 among the world. She also engages in efforts like Squash Latina, where she empowers women to play the sports. But most importantly, her story of being in a terrorist attack and a bomb explosion when she was 11 and her journey from there to becoming the Colombian champion and the world champion is truly inspiring. I've been looking forward to this conversation with Catalina Pelaez. First of all, I'm very grateful that we meet. I, I don't know if you know, but Colombia is probably... If I had a choice of one country to live in, it would be Colombia. Really? Oh my God. How I come? I had an amazing experience. You know, when I started to teach happiness back in 2017, I taught at Stanford University and I taught to the Stanford Graduate School. And, and, and part of the graduate school in Stanford is that spouses can attend with their spouse. And so I was teaching and One of the students was a gentleman called Eduardo. Uh, His wife, Marcella, attended the course with him. And then they approached me after and said, oh my God, we have to bring happiness to Colombia. And basically arranged for me to come and do some talks in Colombia and so on. And the feeling I got when I landed in Bogota is just incredible. I literally, within two minutes, felt I was among family. It was literally, yeah. yeah, it's so warm, so welcoming. 
and I now I speak like seven words of Spanish. Back then I spoke none at all. <laughs> but it was so warm. People were everyone, every single person I met just made me feel not welcome. They just made me feel like I'm their cousin. And it just felt amazing and I loved it. And then I went to uh, Medellin. I worked on a coffee farm for a while. I told myself okay. this, was, this was the life I was supposed to do. I was made to be a coffee farmer. I can promise you that. And yeah. then, <laughs> w- then went to Cartagena and was charmed like to my bare bones. It was just an incredible, every, every part of it was an incredible experience. So one day I'll be your neighbor, I hope. Okay. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. And yes, I can agree with you that people here are very welcoming and they're always willing to show you around. They want you to experience everything. And and to be honest, they're they're very happy all the time. And exactly. it's, it's people that may not ha- have everything in their life, but they have the most important thing and is that they're happy. So it's really it's really amazing when you when you can go and visit certain communities in different parts of the country and yeah you're you get you're very impressed with what you get to see and how they live when I went to Medellin, I'm sure you know I, I mean one of one of the habits I uh, try to develop is I always go to the slums in any big city and so I went yeah. to the slums in Medellin. And differently than all the slums in the world where the government sort of tries to lock people in and make sure that, you know, the the rich community is safe or whatever, the government yeah. of Colombia builds this escalator. Like, you know, I don't know how, how high, but it's literally going up across the whole mountain. It's the highest in the world. Just to basically offer economic opportunities for people in the slums to be to find it easy to go down and up and, and work and instead of just building schools they build football fields and all of the beautiful decoration by worldwide artists on the murals uh, you know the graffitis on the walls basically my my feeling was instead of controlling the slums i think the colombian culture was let them enjoy life let them listen to music exactly. and dance and play and if they're enjoying life then there wouldn't be a need for crimes if you want or at least a less need for crimes it's such a beautiful culture yeah and they they integrated with the city and the whole population so right now there are tours all over these slums and like they even have murals of um legends of colombian sports and for example there are some bmx Writers from Colombia, which did very good at the Olympics, Mariana Pajon, Carlos Ramirez, and they take them there and they have their people paint them in murals and they integrate with the the people from the from those parts. So it's very nice because I guess what we need is to integrate everyone instead yeah. of just keeping them apart and seeing them as as a dangerous owner or stuff like that. If the world understood this, I think it would change everything. Huh? It's instead of saying, "Oh, those people are the enemies. Let's defend ourselves from them." Let's, you know, instead you say, "They're family. Bring them in. Make them feel like family. Everything's going to be okay." I think that would change everything. Yeah, it's a beautiful country in every possible way. But you haven't lived there for many, many years. I heard that you've been constantly traveling for your squash career. So, yeah. Tell me a bit well, about that. Yeah, so I 
I was born in Bogota, and as soon as I was born, we moved to Cali. And because my mom is from Cali, Cali, Colombia, no? Oh, Cali, Colombia, not California. Yeah. Right. Uh, okay. No, no, no. That happens every time. No, Cali, <laughs> Colombia. Because uh -huh. my mom is from Cali, my dad is from Bogota. And we lived uh, my first two years in Cali, and then we moved back to Bogota. And since then, I like did my school here and started playing squash in Bogota. And afterwards, I ended up studying in the U.S. at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut for four years. But I did one year abroad in South Africa, in Cape Town. And oh my God, that was that's a such a beautiful very place. cool experience. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I agree. It's one of my favorites. And afterwards, I finished uh, university. I stayed in the U.S. for two more years. I was a couple of months in Washington, D.C., but then I ended up in Richmond, Virginia, coaching squash part-time and playing the tour full-time. And almost four years ago already, I moved back to Bogota because okay. I, I really wanted to stop coaching and play squash full-time, like 100%, because that had always been my dream since I was in school. And, you know, the, the years started to come and it was now or never. So I decided to move back home because it was very expensive to stay in the U.S. not having another income apart from mm -hmm. what I was earning yeah. from squash tournaments. Yeah. And I didn't want it to coach because I wanted to fully focus on training. So I moved back home and... And yeah, it's been already four years since I've been back in Bogota. But of course, as you said, I travel a lot. Uh, maybe I'm two weeks here. I go away for two weeks, come back a week, go away for a month and so on. So it's a lot of traveling, but I like that when I come back, it's really home and I can rest and I can eat what I miss and be with my family, my friends. So it's always good to that where you go back to, after tournaments, you feel relaxed and you feel home. So I'm I'm happy right now here being back home in Colombia. So squash is not the kind of career that ends by your 30s. I'm sure you're aware, but squash is that one game where Egypt actually wins my country. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we, we never understood why, but we're not jinxing it. So, so yeah. <laughs> there is, if we did anything the Egyptian way, Definitely, we shouldn't win in squash. We're so, you know, flowy and we just like to live life and we enjoy things and we're not disciplined in any way. We don't follow the rules, you know, and squash requires discipline. And so I don't understand ever why we always win gold. I mean, like not always, but very often. Very often, yes. <laughs> and I actually used to play squash when I was younger and I loved it and until I got uh, injured. But the question is, I think squash, at least for Egyptian players, doesn't end in your early 30s. You could probably play into your late 30s and still be a, a world champion, right? Yeah, yeah, I agree. Lately, I think in most of the sports, the age limit has been pushed up. And I mean, that's good. If your body is okay and, and your mind, like you can play until you're fed up or you're saying like, okay, wow. I'm done. Uh -huh. I'm done. But uh, there's, I mean, yeah, I know players that they're in their 37, 38 years old. There's even a friend from Australia and she's 
in her 40s and she's still like top 20 in the world. So, you know, it, it really depends on your mindset and, and your body. Mm. And is this your intention? I mean, are you planning to play for a long, long, long time? Well, I, I want to. I'm 29 right now, turning 30 soon. And yeah, I mean, I really want to play, if I can, at least five more years. Uh, because I feel, I mean, my path, my squash career hasn't been smooth. But I mean, a lot of up and downs, a lot of injuries. But I still love it and I still want to play. I feel I can do more than what I have done. So I have some some goals and some dreams in mind that I think that's what keeps pushing me to like continue after so many injuries. And yeah, so yeah, I, I want to play at least five more years if, if I can, of course. I think your the highest you scored was 56 worldwide, right? Yes, correct. And of course, you were the champion of Colombia. Yep. And on the past, you had quite a few injuries and I have to say quite a few challenges. I want to ask about this, actually. I mean, Colombia has been through a few serious lockdowns, right? Yeah. And for an athlete like you, it's all about rhythm. It's all about constantly training all the time. How does that affect you? Yeah, it was it was tough. It's it's still tough to be honest. Um but at the beginning it was quite nice to not to be home for more than a month. I for know, more than two I months. love that feeling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I think I hadn't been home for at least two straight months in more than ten years. So it actually My same feeling exactly. I mean yeah. <laughs> I swear to you by the end of the second month of lockdown I was like what is this nice feeling I have here? I, I, don't, I don't remember feeling that way before. It's amazing. Really. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh -huh. So yeah, it was nice to just chill. I don't have to go anywhere. I don't have to be on time for anything. So it was quite nice. Of course, um, after four months, six months, you're like, okay, well, I have to like do something to if I want to like, continue training if, if I want to keep playing. So it, it was very tough because I trained at, in, in the floor of my living room from Monday to Saturday. We did Zoom trainings with our team and friends and a bunch of challenges. So it was actually quite intense. And I trained for like almost six months through a computer screen. Oh, wow. And, you know, it just became part of our new lifestyle. So it was, it was okay. But of course, it's not the same doing squats and jumps, everything like on the same place than like playing squash. You know, you have to move yeah, exactly. around, you have to yeah. take longer distances, react. So it was, I mean, I felt strong with what I was doing. But of course, when I stepped on court, it was like, whoa, like, what happened? What is this? And I had to take it very slow at the beginning because uh, I had heard from some friends that were in other countries that when they started playing, they got too excited and hurt something. So you had to be very careful going back on court. So I was, I did it. I, I started very slow. But then beginning of this year, I started training harder. I started sprinting and 
doing some teamwork outside because we were allowed to run outside. But then my, my knee started to bother. Again, I've had a knee problem since started 2015, but it has been up and down. 2019 was a very good year. And then 2020, it felt all right. But then starting of this year, when I didn't play squash for six months and then I was pushing hard, it just started to hurt again. So it was weird because uh, I was like, how come last year was so good and now, and I trained well during pandemic and now it's hurting again. So it was very difficult. And of course I had to stop again. And now I'm strengthening and physio and getting back into the mentality of of being well again. But it's hard because I haven't competed in a year and a half. So it's hard when you don't have those goals, those nearby goals or those targets that you, you're preparing and you're looking forward to it. So, yeah, it, it hasn't been easy for sure. You're not a stranger to injuries. Your story is so inspiring if you don't mind sharing a little bit about the way we got introduced is through your brother daniel who reached out to me and wrote a, a very sweet message on instagram and said do you know catalina and i said yeah i know of her career but do you know her story and i said no and he basically told me about your terrorist attack when you were younger and he said would you like to host her on a snowmo i was like hell yeah uh, <laughs> because this is this is very unusual. I mean, I have to say the resilience that you show through your life is quite inspiring, really. You were 11 and you were caught in a bomb attack, like an explosion in your squash club. Yeah, correct. Tell us about that. Yeah, so, yeah, definitely I wasn't expecting that <laughs> to have experienced something like that. I was 11, it was a Friday, February 7th, 2003, and I had been playing squash for two years already. So, you know, I, I just wanted to get on court every day. I was very motivated and I liked it to go to the club to see my friends and play squash with them and then just run around the club. So I would spend a lot of hours, not just playing squash, but being at the club and doing other activities. So I remember this Friday, my some of my school friends told me, let's come on, stay after school, we'll hang out, and then we'll go home. And I was like, ah, thank you, but like, uh, I have to go train, I have to go play squash. So I went to, I went home, then I went to the club, and I spent my entire afternoon playing squash with different people. Uh, we also used to play football on the on the hallways of the club with some <laughs> friends. Uh -huh. And I don't know, just run around uh, all day. And it was around 7.30 p.m. And I was going to have dinner at the club. So I was by myself. My parents were not there. My brother was not there. And I ordered hamburger. And I started to eat the burger. Then my mom arrived to the club and she sat down with me. We were sitting on the fifth floor, which uh, were the squash courts and the squash cafeteria. And suddenly my mom's phone rings 
and it was my brother, Daniel. So he told my mom if she could go and pick her up. He was not far from the club with some friends at a, at a park. So my mom said, yeah, okay, hold on, I'll, I'll come get you. And she hung up and told me, well, Daniel, uh, I have to go pick him up. Uh, do you want to stay? And I told her, yeah, I'll finish my dinner. And, and then my mom said, okay, so I'll go pick up Daniel and come back and we'll pick you up and go home. I'm like, all right, sounds good. So she left. And 30 minutes later, around 8 p.m., 8.05 p.m., I was signing the, um, the bill. And I don't remember anything. It was like I fainted. I I don't know what happened. And after I would say twenty minutes, of course, this timing I gathered it afterwards. But after around twenty minutes, I woke up. I was laying down on the floor. I had rocks around me everywhere. There were cars on fire. Everything around me was on fire and destroyed. And I was so confused. I had uh, little rocks inside my mouth. I woke up and I was sideways. And when I turned my head around, I could see all this mess. And I didn't understand anything. And somehow my, my squash bag and a friend's squash bag was hanging from a metal rod couple meters above me so my reaction was like all right I'm gonna get up and get my bag but <laughs> first of all I couldn't reach it was too high and I couldn't move I was in pain like my whole body was in pain it was very dark but the fire was pretty close so I felt like I was burning and my right foot was really hurting I, I felt like it was just hanging and my left shoulder but I couldn't see much, so I was like, what happened? I thought I was dreaming. I thought I had fell asleep, like in front of a squash court, while my mom came back for me. So I was so confused. But then I started, uh, while well, I was crying and screaming for help. And probably 15 minutes afterwards, I woke up. Finally, someone, a guy, replied to my voice, and he said, hold on stay there, I'm coming for you. And I was just waiting there. Um, meanwhile, there was huge pieces of cement of all of the building were just like falling constantly. And yeah, there was this very big one, which I saw it coming and I just did like this. I just moved a little bit and it just fell next to me. So I was very lucky it didn't fall on top of me. And finally, this guy found me and he picked me up. The only thing, I couldn't see his face. I just remember he had a yellow helmet and he picked me up and carried me out of the club through the hotel entrance. So this club is has two entrances, the main entrance through 7th Street and the hotel entrance through 5th Street because... It's a sports club, but it's also a business club and it has restaurants. Uh, people have a lot of events and meetings there. So it's a combination of, of both sports and business club. So they took me out through the um, hotel entrance and they, they hand me to another guy 
they put me in in the ambulance and they asked me what are your parents cell phone numbers what is your house number to see if I, I was okay and to try to contact them of course so i was fully aware what was happening since i woke up and i gave my mom's my dad's cell phone number my house number and i remember there was a, a lady next to me on the ambulance which uh, she was from the eighth floor this club has 12 floors and i fell from the fifth floor to the fourth floor because the car bomb which they introduced to the club was parked i thought it was parked on the third floor but in a meeting like two years ago they said it was on the fourth so i'm still not sure third or fourth but of course i was one or two floors above it so from the first floor to the sixth floors everything blew up and it was a hole so i fell down and this lady they were able to rescue her from the eighth floor so after they had the information to contact my parents they closed the ambulance door and they took me to a hospital called uh, the military hospital hospital militar and and yeah the guy who found me went back inside to keep looking for for other people and at this point i was still confused i was i don't know what's happening what's all this i got to the hospital they put me in the x-rays machines to take some some images and like three hours later i was able to reunite with my family at the hospital because the phone network went completely off so it was impossible for the police or the ambulance to communicate with someone from my family until finally a call went through to my house my uncle had gone there and he was the one who picked up and and finally they told him like she's okay she's at this hospital so on the other side of the story my mom and my brother were coming back from the park to pick me up and there was a huge a huge traffic jam and they were like what's going on like what happened and they asked someone on the street and they told them a bomb just went off at Club El Nogal. And I mean, I can't even imagine what what they have felt because they were out. I mean, they're like, oh, well, Catalina's in there. So they just left the car on the street and went running to the club. I mean, the whole building's on fire. Thank God they they were controlling and not letting anyone go inside because your mom would have probably my mom inside, was yeah. yeah exactly my mom really wanted to go and look for me so they kept running from the seventh street to the fifth street up and down asking people if they have seen me and they were there i'm not sure for how long then my dad arrived and finally somehow they communicated with my with my apartment and they say like okay she's at this hospital so i saw them when I was taking the x-rays and I mean I was like happy to see them of course uh their faces were I mean they were so worried and yeah. <laughs> they were not encouraging I was, I'm sure <laughs> yeah. yeah um but at least they were relieved to see me that I was out of there and yeah they put me into the emergency room and 
and I went into surgery. So I don't remember until the next day I woke up and I was still confused. I mean, I woke up and my right leg was, I had a full cast from my, Torso almost my hip, hip. Yeah, from yeah, hip. yeah, to yeah. my toe. Mm. I had a huge bandage on my left knee because I, I had a a big cut that they were they had to keep it open for a couple of days to clean it because it was very there there was a huge risk it could get infected and then they would have to amputate my leg. I broke my humerus so I had to pay like uh, plates, yeah, yeah, holding together my yeah, yeah. my shoulder. I broke, well, the right injury was, I broke my tibia and fibia, and I, I was burnt all over, oh especially my the right side of my face here. The, all this part was, like, very, very bad. My mom wouldn't let me look at myself in the mirror because she thought I was going to get scared. This was very bad. I had a cut in her, on my head. I broke a finger and just like scratches, burns, cuts all over my body. But those were the main, the main injuries. And my mom's sister flew in from Cali to help, help her and help me. And she was the one who told me like, you were in a bomb. And I was like, okay. But you know, I was 11 years old. I, I didn't have the concept of what was a bomb Why or what was ever do that yeah exactly and yeah i didn't know well the country situation and that that could happen you know i wasn't aware of any of this but i i was like okay and just went with it i was I mean, for, there, there were quite a few people that died in that explosion if i remember like tens of people right yeah um 42 48 people that that died and more than 200 got injured because on a Friday, the club is packed, you know, there were weddings, there were kids parties, people having dinner at the gym, at the spa, playing sports. So it was, there were a lot of people and yeah, I know people who, who died or parents, friends who passed away, a squash coach passed away. It was very, very hard, and some stories that people were found until the next day. So to be honest, I am very, I mean, I'm so grateful that that they found me very quick, very fast. I mean, probably 40 minutes after the bomb went off, which is really fast. And yes, I had injuries, but not as, not as severe as other people. So how long did it take you to recover? I mean, at this age with so many injuries, it must have been incredibly hard. Yeah, it, it was hard because as a kid, you know, you always want to be outside, be with your friends, run around, be active. And I grew up being very active. So, yeah, it was very frustrating to lay down in a bed for two months. I was 10 days in the hospital, but then two months without walking, without going to school. And it took me five months and a half about to play squash again. But it was it was very frustrating to, I mean, there were moments where I was like, why does, does this have to happen to me? 
I just want to go and play squash. I want to play football, basketball, volleyball. I wanted to go to school. So it was tough, but my family was very supportive. They were there with me the whole time. My one of my grandma from Cali, my mom's mom, came and stayed with me for two months or so. And my my other grandma was visiting almost every day. I received letters from friends from school, from from the squash community in general. I received letters from World Squash Federation and people from all over the world, which was pretty pretty incredible and motivating. To, to see all these messages. And I think that really helped me to to recover and to have um, a positive mindset. And also, you know, sports. Because me wanting to get back on court made me be more disciplined with my physiotherapy and do everything they told me because I really wanted to go up there again. So, Catalina, I, when I heard you say the story before, uh, of course, I researched you when, when Daniel reached out. Yeah. I don't know if you realize this. A couple of weeks ago, I spoke to Ed Jackson, who was a professional rugby player who broke his neck. He was paralyzed from the neck down. And again, his recovery wow. story was incredible. And I, I spoke to Sophie Elways, who was actually still uh, wheelchaired, again, fell from a very small height. But I have to say your story of recovery as a child is very different. This is the first time I actually speak to someone who's recovering as a child, because every time I heard you speak of that story, you were not really anchored in the past. You were not really going like, what's wrong with those people? You had no grudge against no one. You just wanted to go back and play. Yeah. <laughs> Which is so interesting from a mentality point of view, because I heard you once say that you just went back to the same squash court. And can you explain this to me as a, I mean, now you're a fully grown woman, but as a child, if you can recall, what, what made you as a child not do the kind of thinking that adults do that normally yeah. becomes worse than the injury. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> yeah. You just simply were like, okay, it happened. What can we do now? Can I walk now, please? Can I go back? Can I take it someone? Right. It's like, tell me a bit about that. Yes. Um, I think, and I believe it's, it's that innocence that you have as a child that you don't double think anything. You just care about what makes you happy. And it's similar. I heard the podcast of the doctor that grew up in, in the war mm. and was uh, able Wahid. to move Wahid. on. Yes, Wahid. 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 Amazing, amazing and human being. You asked the similar questions because he grew up in a refugee camp with war all around him. And it was just those things that you see. The example that you were talking about that you see in the news that there's war going all over but in the background you see the kids playing with a ball made out, out of anything you know and they're happy so i think it's, it's that concept that as a kid you just pay attention to what you like what makes you happy and you don't let all the bad thoughts all the situations affect you as they affect you when you grow up so I'm really thankful that this happened to me when I was 11 years old. I think it would have been a different story if it happened to me at my 20s or even like, you know, when you're a teenager. And I feel that made it easier for me to 
to say like, okay, I don't understand what's happening in my country. I don't understand that I just, I was in a bomb explosion caused by a terrorist attack, but I just want to get better. It was kind of that mentality. And yeah, and I say sport was a huge sport and, and friends, family, they were all huge parts of, of my recovery. And I was just thinking of, I want to go back to play squash. I want to go back to play football. So there were a lot of more positive and motivating thoughts than negative. Of course, you have, I had some thoughts that I was like, why? Like, why do I have to live through this? Like, why when I was starting to play good squash, I have to be interrupted by this because I was going to go to my first South American tournament that year. And of course, because of, of the injuries, I couldn't go. But yeah, I think it's that, that innocence that you have as a child. And I loved my sport too much that it was greater my willing to go back and play. And Nogal was my club. So, you know, it's like I didn't even thought of going somewhere else to play squash. I was like, all right, I, yes, this happened. And it was a little scary going back at the club because I went back while they were reconstructing it. Because <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah. I felt that that was going to help me to go back to the club easier afterwards because there's a lot of people who they didn't go back to the club and I just wanted to continue playing squash and that was my club. So I went in and since I was young, a lot of people, I got a lot of interviews and I mean, I, I was a very quiet person and I still feel I'm not the most, I am social and I talk, but it wouldn't be your first impression when you meet me, maybe. <laughs> I'm like um, you. Uh, I'm like yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> If you leave me alone, I'll talk again in 2078. So that's. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I guess all these interviews helped me to talk about it. And, and it just got easier every time to oh. talk about it, you know? Oh. And, mm. you know, I've been, I've been telling this story for 18 years. So, of course, it's, Every time I tell it, it brings memory back. And, and yeah, I, I, every time I grow older, I, I started looking at it at, in a different way because you have more information of what happened. And it's crazy that it has affected me more being older than it did wow. mentally. Is that true? I'm talking mentally. So, so you, yes, can still, uh, you can still think about it now and get some of the feelings that the adults then got? Yes, because three years ago when Colombia was doing the peace treat and the vote of like finishing war, the guerrilla, you know, I was in the U.S., in Richmond, Virginia, and I couldn't vote for the yes or no, because I was away. But my thought is, is that I would have voted for yes, because if we have a slight chance 
of starting peace in Colombia, which has been a country that has been in war for like 60 years, why not take that opportunity? And I was amazed because the country was divided. It was almost 50-50 for yes, 50 for no. But all the people or most of the people who said yes were people that had lived the conflict, the terrorists, either themselves or their family. I felt that those who said yes were looking to the future. Those who said no were looking to the past. It was really such an interesting thought experiment when you think about it. The ones that were saying, my life can improve if we do this and we live in peace going forward, said yes. The ones that basically were saying, how can we forgive all of what happened, were saying no. And it's it's a no-brainer for me. It's like, okay, so forgiveness is not for them. Forgiveness is for you. You're forgiving so that you can move forward and have a better life. And to me, again, it's that mentality of, no, I want to sit in this ditch and hate my life and hate the other person. And, you know, I'm never going to let it go. And I don't mind if more people die, but I'm not going to let go of the past. I think that's a strange mentality, if you ask me. Yeah, I agree with you. So that's why I was so impressed that so many people voted for the no. And a few months afterward, I got invited by one lady who was also a victim of the bomb in the club. And she she wasn't able to walk for a long time, but she kept pushing and and she was able to recover, walk again. And she became the leader of the victims of the Club El Nogal. And she was involved with the peace street in Cuba. She wanted to make the FARC, the guerrilla, to make peace with the victims. Well, there are different terrorist acts, but she was focusing on the victims of the club. So she organized a meeting, and it was part of, of this project that was based on accept like truth reconciliation and forgiveness between the terrorists and the victims so she called me one day very surprising call and she was I would like to invite you to this event and she said I'll tell you the location afterwards but I just need to know if you're willing and I said yeah I'm willing to go and when I hang up, I was so nervous because I would have never imagined that I was going to be face to face with the people who did the terrorist attack and that have created huge conflicts for the country. So I was very nervous. And then I thought it was going to be like, okay, in a week, in two weeks. And, and she told me, no, it's, it's tomorrow. And then I, I was, I was so nervous. I even, I was part at that time and I even left the car keys inside the car because I just my mind was like so amazed I don't know where I was and I was so nervous and said like okay I I said yes and because I feel it could be a good closure for what they've done and for all this a part of my life so I said like okay I yes it's gonna be tough and I don't know what to expect but I feel I have to go and I want to go. So I went and it was crazy just to sit down next to people who were part of the guerrilla group, listen to them, 
we did some workshops where they divided us, the victims, with people from the FARC, with people from the Truth Committee of Colombia, with people from other identities. And together we had to work like in school when they say like, okay, dividing groups. Okay, today's topic is truth. Write down what is truth for you. So we had to do that. Oh my with, God, that's an them. amazing initiative. Yeah, so it was so overwhelming because for some seconds you just were focusing on the activity. And then like I, I went back and forth and said like, oh man, I can't believe this lady next to me did all these terrible things. But now inside of me, I was like, but now she's willing to accept and to say sorry and move on. So I, it was a mix, mixed feelings. It lasted like four hours. At the end, I even went up to one of the head guys and said like, thank you for doing this. And, and then I, I left and it just hit me. I decided to walk home for, took me probably like an hour, but I just couldn't, like my head was spinning so much with different thoughts because in that moment I heard a lot of truth. I didn't knew for 15 years. At that moment, I heard facts that the government knew about the terrorist attack, that something was going to happen and they didn't do anything to prevent it. So I was like frustrated a little bit because, okay, yes, they did this event. Only after 15 years, they accept it was them officially. But now I also know that there's a part from the government side that they could have done something to prevent it and they didn't. So I was like so mad and frustrated because I didn't understand how this is possible. And that was in my head for a while. A couple weeks after I was going to Chicago to play a tournament and I played terribly. It was so bad because this was in my mind, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't concentrate at all. And then I started thinking back and starting doing research, looking at news, looking at videos. And, you know, as a kid, I wouldn't have done that because I was like, okay, I was in a bomb. Okay, I'm just going to recover. But then throughout the years, every year you hear a new truth and then you're like, why? You start wondering why, why, why? And until today, I feel that that peace street hasn't been officially demonstrated. I don't think we have peace in Colombia. I mean, yes, the biggest guerrilla group, most of it gave their guns and now they're trying to be a political party without violence. But the rest is still out there. So it's been hard these past years because you know more and you understand more, I think that complicates everything. And it's been up and down, but I mean, right now, after that meeting, I was struggling mentally with that for a while and I couldn't concentrate with my sport, but um, now I'm okay. And I mean, once in a while, when you hear news about that topic, 
I start thinking about it again, but, but, uh, it's not a thing I think about every, every day and I just have to live with it. You know, I'm a huge fan of switching off the news, by the way, because whatever you hear today doesn't change anything from the past. So can I ask you the most difficult question ever? If I gave you a chance to go back 18 years and erase that event as if it has never happened, erase it and erase everything that came as a result, erase the cost, erase the, your grandma visiting you every day, your other grandma sitting, you know, for a couple of months with you going back to the club when it was in construction. If you remember the movie sliding doors, imagine that this didn't happen and you just continued with your life. Would you go back and erase it? That's a very tough question. <laughs> I mean, I don't think I can fully say yes or no, because in some aspects, I would say yes, I would like to erase it because people would have not died. Maybe the country would have had a different turn in that situation, in the violent situation. My body wouldn't have been as injured and affected because those injuries have changed my body in some ways. So could I have had a, a better squash career with less injuries? I don't know. But I think basically I would say yes for thinking about the sufferment of the people that died, the families who had to suffer after that. But in the other hand, I would say no, because it really helped me to be stronger and to be the person who I am and to have that mentality that no matter how hard life pushes you down and life beats you up, there's always a way to overcome those situations and to be better. It taught me so much that I think I would have been a totally different person if I just erased that event. So. I mean, it, it's hard to say, like, I got good out of such a bad experience, but it's true because in the moments of sufferment and the hard times that you live are almost always times that you learn the most from yourself, from others. And I think that's a quality that not everyone gets the chance to have and they can never imagine. If you haven't lived something like that, you can never imagine. How is it? So. It's tough. I mean, yes, I would erase it for some things, but no, for, for others. First of all, these are true words of wisdom, what you just said. What, what I've seen you say here, or what I heard you say here, is a very interesting mix of wisdom and compassion, which I have to say is the first time this question is answered this way for me. You basically were saying, from a point of view of wisdom, this is what made me who I am made me stronger. It made me progress in life and shape me so that other things wouldn't affect me so that other injuries I can overcome and, you know, so that I know who I am in life. But from a compassion point of view, I would have removed it because I, you know, it wouldn't have hurt all of those other humans, which if you don't mind me saying that this positions you at the top of enlightenment, if you take that answer together and tell yourself, what were the two things that we humans are supposed to be thriving for? It would definitely be wisdom and compassion. I think that's a beautiful way of, of looking at it. I think on the other hand, sadly, whatever we do, we can't erase it. 
And so it's a wonderful thought experiment, if you want, but perhaps the only way forward is to hope for it not to happen again, you know, and perhaps that very, very tough experience you had in terms of meeting with the, with the people that did it is just a step in trying to at least make sure that those people don't do it again, even though the world, sadly, it has that interesting capability of creating maniacs that, that hurt others. I heard that very interesting explanation once that nobody wakes up in the morning to do the wrong thing. Everyone, including people who plant a bomb, somehow in their mind, somehow are convinced that planting a bomb is the best thing I can do today. This is great for humanity and everyone else. And, and I think the whole, the whole madness of our world is those ideologies that can get someone so extreme and still convinced they're doing the right thing. It's just mind boggling, really. And maybe through more and more communication, we can tell people, hey, can, can you just hear another point of view, please? Can we just try to meet somewhere in the middle? Let's not do bombs like slap me on the face four times. I mean, that would work, right? Yeah. You know? <laughs> that would be a lot better. <laughs> that would be so much better. Yeah, but I agree with what you said that, yeah, definitely we can't erase the past, but we can definitely learn about it learn how to live with it in the present without locking ourselves down in the past. And with, um, with all those questions, with regret, with frustration, with anger, because um, it won't take us anywhere. You know, if you're stuck in the past, you're not living your life in the present and it's not going to lead you to a better future if you stay there. And everything can happen to you. If you want to look at the hardest things, the worst situations, but it's how you look at those situations, how you take them in and now how you respond to them instead of just having negative thoughts and, and saying, why, why this to me? Why, why everything that it's bad is happening to me? So it definitely is how you see life and uh, what life gives you. A hundred percent. So what's next? When do we celebrate and say you've achieved your dream? I don't know. Um, I think it's a long journey still. And as I grow older, I feel more that it's, it's not the destination, but the journey that counts and that makes you happy because the result is not always what you want or what you have dreamed, what you expect with everything that you have done that you have prepared. So I'm very happy and satisfied with what I've done as my squash career and what I'm starting to do, which is um, help the youngers, especially the girls to like get into the sport and, and keep playing squash and construct the basics of the sport. I want the sport to grow a lot, but I do feel and I want to, and I want to continue. And I know I can achieve more. So all these obstacles with injuries and life in general, in a way, they're a drive to say like, okay, I overcame this. I can overcome this one. When, like, I don't know how to answer your question concretely and say, when I do this, I'm going to be happy. Because it's not like that. You know, I'm already happy. And I can improve that and 
maintain that happiness with the dreams that I still have. So it's just um, refocusing, getting back on the mindset and listening to my body. What a wise young woman. <laughs> I think you taught so many of us so much today. Have you had the chance to listen to Peter Rennert? Peter is a very good friend who played tennis professionally. Yes, I did. Yeah, and his telos, uh, the effortless life operating system, which is really, really exactly what you're saying here. It's like my body is saying I'm a little off balance and I need to show the self-love for my body to recover because when that is the case, then I'll do better. And I think that's quite a wise thing to do. It's not about the result. I think you've done really well already, but it's more about the journey. I think that's an incredible way of looking at it. On that game where you're going to be ranking higher than 56, I'm going to be there and I'm going to be cheering with my seven words of Spanish. And uh, I wish you all the luck in the world, all the progress that you can ever achieve. And I hope that you, will, you, do so that. Much. you will do that all the time with happiness and contentment for what you are, for what you showed us today. No more injuries though, Catalina. Let's, uh, let's yeah. just... <laughs> <laughs> I, I have also learned that I have to be a little more settled. Okay. Don't go off on a, an adventure when next week you have a tournament. So I'm learning, to, <laughs> I'm learning to be more responsible with that. I think there is an amount of energy that is with you that is a little higher than the average human being. So uh, Yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> let's direct that energy to the right place. Yes. <laughs> Remember, I, I think of all of the wise things you said today, the idea of being the best player you can be. I say that all the time. I think this is your life's purpose. Your life's purpose is to be the best player you can be. It's as simple as that. Yes. Yes, I agree. And you know what? If the avatar you've been given has a slightly weaker knee, then let's be the best that this avatar can be. And I think that yes. really, mm -hmm. to me, this simplifies life so much. It makes everything so clear. There are things I can control, things I cannot. Exactly. And whatever it is that is not within my control, yes, determines some of my final results on the journey. But you know what? It doesn't actually matter at all as long as I do the best that I can with the journey. And I, and I think that's really what you taught us today. Yeah, thank you. I, I found so the quote that I wanted to say, yeah, is life is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you respond to it. Catalina, I'm so, I'm so glad I met you. Give uh, Daniel a big hug for introducing us. I will. It's, it's been a, a wonderful and fascinating conversation. I think for all of you listening, maybe it's a good opportunity to pause now and, and reflect a little bit because I know all of us go through some difficulties through life, but very few of us go through a bomb explosion when we're 11 and see how Catalina took that and came where she arrived just by a true wise approach, a wisdom to looking at life and attempt to constantly be the best player she can be. I'm very grateful that you give me the opportunity to meet so many amazing and wonderful people from all over the world. Today, I even loved Colombia more. Thank you, Catalina, for, for presenting your people so wonderfully. And I will remind everyone, maybe it's a uh, all of those things that we do that injure us, maybe it's not a bad idea every now and then to slow down 
And uh, I love you all for listening and I will see you next time.